Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. If you've ever gone on a hiking trip without training first, or if you've ever pulled your bike out of the garage for the first time all summer and then gone on a long ride, or if you've ever hit the weight room hard on January 1st as of trying to realize a year's worth of fitness goals in a single day, you've probably experienced DOMS, which stands for Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness. It's a long name for something that's quite common and also often preventable. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, we'll discuss delayed onset muscle soreness with Maliki McHugh, the Director of Research at the Nicholas Institute of Sports Medicine and Athletic Trauma in New York, getting his perspective on the effectiveness of many current treatments for DOMS and his predictions for the possible prevention methods of the future. As he points out, this is an area where research is ongoing and many scientific questions remain unanswered. Here's our interview with Maliki McHugh. So people are familiar with being sore after a workout when we're talking about delayed onset muscle soreness, from the patient's perspective in terms of how they feel, does this feel any differently than what we think of as sort of garden variety soreness? Well, the key word is delayed. If you do a workout and you're sore during the workout or you're sore immediately after the workout, that's something to be concerned about. The delayed onset muscle soreness is a normal process and you really shouldn't feel anything until one day after, maybe 12 hours to 24 hours after you start to feel some soreness and some stiffness and that usually peaks two days after your workout and it's a very reproducible response to unfamiliar exercise and it's a somewhat healthy response. So it's all about the timing. If it's delayed, it's good. If it's immediate, it could be a problem. And so just to break that down, immediate potentially means that you're not maybe sore so much as injured. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Delayed onset muscle soreness, or DOMS as we call it, is not really an injury at all. It's a normal process. But if you have some type of symptoms during or within one to two hours after the exercise, then that could be a potential problem. A muscle strain, which is more of an acute problem, or some type of tendinopathy or something else that uh, you may want to address with your physical therapist or your physician. So as you said, this is something to be expected, but let's kind of break down what causes the soreness in general. It's actually the type of muscle contraction. So when you're lifting weights, when you lift a weight up, that's what we call our positive contraction or a concentric contraction. And when you lower the weight down, it's what we call an eccentric contraction or negatives is in the weightlifting world, it's called negatives. And so those eccentric contractions that actually cause the muscle soreness. It's also a very strong stimulus for building muscle doing eccentric contractions, so it's an important component of your workout, but it does create some internal disruption in the muscle fibers, within the muscle fibers, that after about eight hours after exercise might start to bring on some symptoms that'll peak one to two days after the exercise. And that soreness, you know, you mentioned it's to be expected and it's a good thing, but what's happening? So essentially what happens your muscle fibers, you have about, say, 500,000 muscle fibers in a large muscle, like the calf muscle, for example. Inside those muscle fibers are little muscle fibers, what we call myofibrils. And along those myofibrils, we get little disruptions where parts of them are pulled apart, strained apart, 
and that happens during the exercise and then within eight hours after the exercise there's sort of an inflammatory response that kicks in that then the next day you say oh wait a minute my muscle's sore and it's a little swollen it's a little stiff and it's due to those you know some people call them micro tears or micro trauma within the muscle fibers but it's very different from say a muscle strain muscle strain is a tear across your muscle fibers the analogy I like to use is a sheet of paper. If you have a sheet of paper and you tear it across, that's like a muscle strain. And if you pull on either end of the sheet of paper, the sheet of paper will tear apart. So you've got a complete tear of the muscle. Muscle soreness or delayed onset muscle soreness, the equivalent would be if you poke little holes in the sheet of paper. That's what muscle soreness is like. So if you pull on either end of the paper, it's not going to tear because it's just little sporadic holes in the muscle. And that's kind of what the delayed onset muscle soreness is. So people you mentioned earlier, people can often get this if they try an exercise or activity that they haven't been doing a lot of. So I think, you know, people who, let's say, the first time they go out skiing, you know, when they get the bike out for the summer for the first time, often these are activities where people walk away going, oh, yeah, those are muscles that I forgot were there. How long, once this soreness sets in, might that typically last? So typically, if the symptoms peak two days after exercise, they'll probably go away within four days. And that's the soreness. If we actually measure the strength, so how strong you are and how much strength loss occurs when you have this soreness, the strength loss peaks about one day after exercise and will start to recover thereafter and should be, again, back within four days. But again, it depends on the intensity of the insult, the type of exercise that caused the damage in the first place. A good example of what causes this soreness and why it occurs with what we call eccentric contractions, if you hike up a mountain and say you camp overnight and then you hike back down the mountain and then go home, the next day you're really sore. Your muscles, your quadriceps will be sore. You might even be limping around. Now, that's normal hiking. You go up first and then you come back down. But if you go to the Grand Canyon, you go down first and then you come up. You're going to have difficulty leaving the next day because it's the going down that causes the soreness that involves those eccentric contractions, and that causes the damage. So we've talked a lot about activities that cause soreness where people sort of are unprepared. They haven't done hiking or they haven't done biking, whatever that case is. People obviously, of course, get sore doing regular activities when they sort of push beyond what they're normally doing. A typical example is somebody who runs a lot, but now they're going to train for a longer distance, so they start pushing their distance out. In cases like that, is that soreness is to be expected, I suppose, but is that a sign of progress? So in other words, we hear this no pain, no gain sort of thing. Should people look at the soreness as a sign that they're getting stronger or better, or should it be a warning sign or a combination of both? It's a sign that you've done something differently. So if you go and you work out on a track every day, and so you do your run on a track, and then you decide to go do a hill run, you're going to get sore because the downhill parts of the hilly run are going to cause soreness, and there's going to be an added eccentric component to that. But if you do a lot of hill running and then you go to track, you probably shouldn't get sore from that change because you haven't added any sort of negative or eccentric component to your muscle contractions. If you do get sore, it might be because you went more intensely or you did a faster run. And the faster run might cause some additional soreness, but not an extreme amount. But if you do, you know, 10K three times a week or something like that, then you go to the track and you decide to do a sprint workout, 
then you're going to get sore because then you're going to be using muscles, one, that you don't use very often, and two, that are not used to being worked in an extreme range of motion. So when you sprint or when you go faster, your joints go through a much larger range of motion than when you're jogging or running at a slower pace. And it's that extra length that you put the muscle through that will potentially cause the soreness. So let's use that as an example. Let's say I'm that guy. I went to the track. I did my sprints. I'm feeling it the next day or the day after that. What typically kind of would you recommend for me to get over the soreness? The horse is already bolted at that stage, and you mostly have to just sit and wait it out. You can actually exercise. You're not going to injure yourself exercising as long as you're doing sort of nothing too strenuous, and you won't exacerbate the damage. So some things that people like to do, is they like to stretch, and if you do stretch, you will get some relief immediately after the stretching, but two hours later, you're going to be back where you would have been had you not done the stretching. So the process has to run its course. Things that don't help are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories do not accelerate the recovery process. They may provide pain relief because that's part of what they do, but they're not helping that sort of remodeling of the tissue or accelerating it, and in fact, they may decelerate it. Uh, generally, non steroidal anti-inflammatories are not good for this situation. People like to get a massage. The evidence is very weak for the effectiveness of massage, but there is good evidence in an animal model that 30 minutes of mechanical compression simulating massage does accelerate recovery. So we haven't seen the good results in humans yet, but it should work if you do it right and the timing has to be right and it has to be within 30 minutes of your damaging exercise. So the thing is, when you've finished your exercise, even though you've done 20 times before, you tend to forget that, oh, I'm going to be sore tomorrow and the next day. So you don't think about getting the treatment immediately after your exercise, but that's probably where you can do some things that may be beneficial in terms of treating what is ahead of you, which is that soreness on the next couple of days. So to make sure I'm following that, foam rollers and stuff, all those things are the craze. So if I'm going to hopefully get some benefits from those, and as you said, it's a little bit murky, that the level of benefits, I'm better off kind of coming immediately home from my exercise and doing my foam rolling then rather than waiting. Yes, the foam roller kind of simulates what was done in the animal model where they had this mechanical roller that rolled over these muscles after the animals had been exercised and it seemed to accelerate the recovery of the muscle. And a lot of the things here are dose related. So with massage, we don't know what the right dose. In this animal model, it was a 30 minute massage and it was over a specific muscle. When you do a workout, you've got lots of muscles that are going to need to be massaged do you need to have 30 minutes for your quadriceps on the right side, quadriceps on your left side, hamstrings on the right side, hamstrings, calves? You know, then you've got, you know, three hours of massage there, which then the massage therapist will probably need to be treated after that. One of the things I see a lot of is cryotherapy and people getting into ice baths after workouts. It works a little bit, but when you do a bite of strenuous exercise, when you finish over the next eight hours, that's when this sort of secondary injury response, where the muscle starts to become inflamed, there's some oxidative stress in the muscle, that's kind of when the damage process is taking place. And if you go and you jump in an ice bath for 10 minutes, you're talking about 10 minutes in an eight-hour process. 
it's not going to have that much of an effect. So we're actually looking at some research right now trying to deliver cooling to muscles for six hours after exercise where you put cooling devices, sort of like cold packs that stay cold for a long period of time to see does that accelerate the recovery or prevent that sort of subsequent soreness you're going to get. The idea is, okay, this cryotherapy or ice baths, they may work, but we're not delivering a large dose, and we can't make someone stay in an ice bath for six hours. That's dangerous. But can we deliver something that might work over a longer period of time? You know, something that's, say, 15 degrees Celsius or 60 degrees Fahrenheit is cool, and that can provide some type of drawing heat away from the muscles, cooling the muscles that might accelerate that recovery process. So the key thing is, how much of a dose do we need to actually have a positive effect here? So I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. You talked about, to some degree, you just need to wait it out and let the process happen. That said, wait it out, I don't want to interpret that necessarily as sitting and letting it happen. So sitting and waiting and being sore versus actually getting up and moving and being active, is one of those better than the other? Well, if you get up and move, you're definitely going to feel better immediately after. One of the things we do when we do these muscle damage protocols in the legs is you know, we say, well, how sore are your muscles from a scale of zero, no discomfort whatsoever, to 10, walking with a limp? And I do a lot of protocols that cause people to walk with a limp. So if you're walking with a limp, and then I say, you know what, get on the bike, or try to go for a jog, they'll say, Hi, I'm limping, I can't go for a jog. But once they start moving, you know, that soreness will go away, they'll be able to jog, they'll be able to ride a bike, whatever, then after 20, 30 minutes, they feel fine. And then they come back, oh, I feel great. And they do feel great, but, you know, four or five hours later, they're probably back where they would have been with that stiffness and soreness. But getting up and moving does help you feel better acutely, and it may not impact the long-term recovery of those specific muscles that are experiencing this soreness. But you don't need to sit down and not exercise. You can continue your exercise, but it'll be somewhat limited, and it'll also feel a little bit more difficult. So what about prevention? Whether I'm going into, you know, use that Grand Canyon example, obviously most people don't hike the Grand Canyon every day, so that would be an unusual event people would see coming and could potentially try to prepare for. Or we use that running example, somebody who's a long-distance runner who's going to now move to sprint workouts, and they think, okay, it's likely I'm going to feel some soreness here. Is there anything they can do to prepare for this and kind of prevent this soreness, or is it just going to happen? No, you can prevent it. A good example I use is around sort of New Year's when people have their New Year's resolutions that they're going to get fit. And, you know, the first week of January, they go to the gym. They work out like crazy. They lift all these weights and different muscle groups. And then two days later, they're in agony. And they oh, why did I do this? Why did I do this? They don't go back to the gym for another week or two weeks. And then they kind of lose that incentive that they had on the 1st of January. And they kind of don't follow through on their New Year's resolutions. What I would say to them is go to the gym on the 2nd of January or the 1st of January, and if you've got a workout where you're going to do five or six or seven different exercises, go to a relatively intense weight, so, you know, something that's somewhat difficult to lift, and do, say, four reps, five reps of each motion instead of your three sets of 15 or your three sets of eight or your four sets of 12. Then go home. Go back and eat pizza for another couple of days. So what you're doing is you're doing the intensity that you'll probably work out at, but you're only doing a couple of reps. 
that actually will provide some protection so that when you go and do your full workout a week later, you won't get the soreness that you would have got had you not done that preconditioning a week before. What about hydration? Does that play a role in any of this? If the exercise that causes the damage causes some dehydration and you don't rehydrate properly, you will exacerbate those symptoms. So one of the bad things is recreational sports, sort of your weekend warriors that play sports and then they go and drink alcohol afterwards. They're going to experience more soreness over the next couple of days and have a longer recovery process because on top of that damage process, they have a dehydration process. So you do not want to be dehydrated. But in terms of preventing, you know, I say you can go to the gym and work out. There also, there's a lot of things out there in the nutrition world about drinks and supplements that might help prevent muscle damage. 95% of them don't work, but we've done some work on tart cherry juice, and it's become a very popular food for athletes now. And because cherries are very potent, and they have actually pretty potent anti-inflammatory effects, so that sort of process that occurs in the eight hours after a bout of damaging exercise, if you've taken cherry juice for four days before the exercise, that seems to block some of those post-exercise responses that cause the muscle damage and cause the strength loss and the pain. And it's due to preventing some of the oxidative stress and preventing some of the inflammation. The term we like to use is pre-covery, meaning you need to get it in your system beforehand. When we undertook this research, I said there's absolutely no chance that any food is going to have any impact on delayed onset muscle soreness. It's a very reproducible response and really not much helps prevent it. And then when I saw the results, I went, wow, this is, this is pretty impressive. We looked at some research and it showed that if people actually ate 50 cherries a day, some of your systemic inflammatory markers were reduced. These were perfectly healthy individuals just eating cherries and looking at blood markers. And I said, okay, well, if you eat 50 cherries a day, you know, it's quite difficult. So I asked people that wanted us to do some research in cherry juice, and I said, well, how many cherries are in a bottle? And they said 45 to 50. And I said, okay, well, let's give them two 8-ounce bottles a day, and that's delivering approximately 100 cherries. And we know that should reduce inflammation based on the eating cherries as long as you haven't destroyed most of the active ingredients in making the drink. But I get back to the whole idea of figure out what, how much of something you need, whether it's an ice bath or whether it's a food, and how much of that you need to have a, what we would call a medicinal effect to have some benefit. So let's close out with that, kind of along those lines. You've got these things that you're sort of still at the beginning stages of researching. You seem to have some promising signs looking ahead. When we think about, say, an Olympics, you know, a couple Olympics from now when you've got elite athletes there, make your best guess. I mean, track athletes, for example, at that point, are they going to be chugging cherry juice before they run? Are they going to be wearing, you know, cooling, providing leggings to recover faster? If you had to make your best guess, what's going to change in terms of the way people respond to and try to prevent delayed onset muscle soreness, especially at that elite athlete level? At the elite athlete level, I think cherry juice has already made its inroads. I mean, cyclists, professional hockey teams, I mean, the number of teams taking cherry juice as a recovery drink, I should say pre-covery, it's part of their diet. It's not something you take immediately before exercise. It's something you get it in your diet and you can take it after exercise. 
that's already taking place. That's become pretty widespread. Um, it's interesting you said wearing cooling pants. That's where I see that line of research going, where you get something where people would be wearing cooling devices in their pants so that after a workout they put the pants on. And essentially they're doing their ice bath, but they're not in an ice bath. They can walk to a restaurant, they can go home, and they're getting the cooling effect. So that's several years away. And one, we've got to see how well it works, what the dose is. There's lots of things that might work, but people just don't do because you can't make it practical for them. For example, if I told you eating 100 cherries a day will dramatically improve your recovery, a lot of people aren't going to do that. It's a pain to try to eat 100 cherries a day. So that's why developing a juice that might work is more beneficial because it's easier to take. So there's other things that athletes could do that might help. For example, if we figure out that it actually what you need is a one-hour massage, at the elite level, people probably will be able to get that. At the sub-elite level, not necessarily. Say you have an American football team. You've got 45 players. Say 25 of them play strenuously in the game. How are you going to deliver one and a half hours of proper massage to 25 people? It becomes a practical issue. So, yeah, I think... Some things might work. We've got to think about can we deliver it practically. Molly Keep it cute. Fascinating information. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.